Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... Good day and welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations at ANU. And this podcast is produced each week, every week in fact, by the ANU's wonderful people at Policy Forum. Now, did you know the Earth is spinning faster? A July measurement found it had taken 1.5 milliseconds shy of 24 hours to do a full rotation. Philip Adams, always dry, uh, has uh, tweeted, I blame Labor, and I think he's right. But it's not just the orbital rotation. Look what Labor has done to the global economy. Inflation, interest rates, bank foreclosures. Treasurer Jim Chalmers says inflation will top out this year at nearly 8%, 7.75%, I think, is the figure that uh, they're banking on for inflation to top out. And, of course, we know in the US and the UK it's up, up above 9% uh, uh, recently and may go higher. So to help us understand this, it's welcome back to the ANU's visiting fellow and business and economy editor at The Conversation, Peter Martin. Good day. Good day, Peter. How are you? Well, um, the future is arriving more quickly. <laughs> Isn't it? And and just before we get on to that, I mean- And hasn't it? I mean, in terms of news, in terms of economic news. Well, no, but let's, let's, news, let's stick- It really, really has. It's just been this avalanche since Labor that's got true. elected. That's, that's true. But let's stick specifically to this point about the, the, <laughs> the, the globe rotating in less than 24 hours. You were telling me just before we yeah. uh, recorded this that that actually does have implications for, um, you know, for computers and for, as you say, the ABC, for example, which... Yeah, oh, the ABC plays havoc because the news theme has to start on something that's sent from sort of central time somewhere. Right. But the programs, Radio National, they're, they're often recorded, uh, play up, you know, are designed to last so many seconds. Yeah. And then if there's an extra second and they oh, they need to keep tracks on it. And we've never had, I think we've never had a negative second before. That is a year actually lacking 
a second. So, so sometimes, yeah. So sometimes the globe is is dawdling a bit, but it hasn't been the case that it's spun more quickly. And haven't things sped up? Oh, it's well, just, they do say that new governments spend a lot of time spinning. So it's just well, yeah. Well, the last I think, government has uh, all I, it did. I, really. I think they have. You see, I'm 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 stealing your segues, Mark. Uh, <laughs> no, be, because the the statement that. Jim Chalmers, the new treasurer, made and Chalmers, you know, has a very attractive, sort of open, honest method of presentation. He does, but yeah. it was straight out of the blame the old guys mm. spin. Sort of, Joe Hockey came in, you know, it was we we're changing that. John Howard came in, it was Beasley's black hole, and uh, you know, things were so bad before. Chalmers is implausibly suggesting that uh, the mess we're in is the result of the coalition. Now, when I last looked, the coalition didn't invade Ukraine, right? The coalition didn't force up the world price of oil. The coalition didn't force up the world price of wheat. The coalition didn't uh, close down China, which has resulted in uh, shortages of chips that have uh, added uh, to uh, shortages. Maybe you could argue that they closed the borders and, and that's meant a, a shortage of labour and uh, higher costs, but they sort of had to do that. And he's been um, doing the standard thing of, we've inherited something which is really awful. It's true, they weren't exactly letting on how awful it was, but I don't think the coalition caused it. Well, look, you know, that, that we can have a, a bit of an argument about that. I read a column uh, on the weekend uh, in which I made the point that there's a lot of media tut-tutting about uh, Labor framing the problem rather than addressing it, and I think that's a bit rich after nine yeah, well, years we, of a government he, he that's done. He didn't say he was going to address it. He said, I'm going to level with you well, about they the need state to frame of the, the economy. Problem. And they yeah. need to frame the problem, and they need to remember that previous Conservative governments have been banging on about Labor problems for a dozen years afterwards, let alone two months, you know. I mean, Labor's $96 billion of debt was a theme that Peter Costello and John Howard yeah, hammered and, all the way to. And now to, we have it again, and it, it's no better. Well, like, yeah, but it's political Chalmers, reality. If you, don't, if you don't make sure they own those problems, then you will end up owning them. That debt, firstly, every single measure, as far as I know, was supported by Labor. Okay, so- we're talking, about, we're talking about the yeah, debt now. Yeah, we're talking about the, the debt that was run up during COVID. So, yeah, yeah. You know. Okay, I agree. And secondly, yeah. the, the new treasurer, Jim Chalmers, lovely man, says, we didn't get anything for this. He is referring there to infrastructure and, and things that will help the economy. Like, like actual reform. What we got was avoiding what looked like a calamity, in avoiding a very high rate of unemployment, and then when they kept the spending up, we've driven unemployment down to a level that was, well, inconceivable. The ANZ Bank uh, last week had uh, a forecast for the future of unemployment. They expect the rate to go down uh, early next year to two point something, two point something. Mm. Now, don't tell me that's not nothing we got for all of that spending. Well, yeah, but it's it's one thing. Look, I know I'm going to have an argument when I say this, but it, it's not that surprising that you end up with a very tight labour market when you close the borders and the overhang of that persists in the economy, even though the borders are notionally yeah, open we've, now. Yeah, we've had uh, those same sort of uh, unemployment things happening 
in uh, countries with with open borders. We, we've had them happening in Europe. Okay, we've had so them we've happening had, in the we, US, we, we, which we've is had effectively a, open. But, but we've had an economy that has uh, existed for years on. Uh, had been assisted for years, I should say, on having a lot of imported labour, skilled mm. labour brought in, uh, migrant labour brought in for agriculture and so forth. And a lot of that was closed off right at a time when we had this kind of hyper-Keynesian injection, more than $300 billion mm, right. worth of injection into the economy over the COVID period. So you put those two things together. Is it all that surprising that we have a an economy that's over-revving at the moment, which is you know yeah. the sort of problem, um, and in which in, in which unemployment is quite low. Of course, the labour market's tight. But we don't yeah, see. We yeah. don't see. I mean, economists talk about this as if it's all logical, but they don't seem to worry about the fact that it hasn't resulted in wage oh, rises. You're 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 an honorary economist, Mark. Uh, <laughs> you, 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 you you've sort of got it right. We weren't set up to work on farms. I mean, had we been set up to work on farms, frankly, a lot of the farming we do, we wouldn't do. We do stuff that's more mechanised. Mm. Australians aren't used to doing that kind of work. And uh, there are other industries, uh, medicine, you, you, Australians uh, have a reluctance to go away from the cities to be doctors. Mm. We're, and we've got over that by relying on uh, foreigners. Um, you know, we'll be able to continue doing that again soon. But uh, for the moment, it's, it's created a few problems here. Yeah. yeah. So let's get into some of the sort of details around the, 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 I guess, the circumstances facing the government and how it goes about it. Now, you know, we have a situation where the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, uh, warned last week uh, that the situation is going to get worse, that uh, in, uh, global recession is a, is a distinct possibility, um, that reserve banks, central banks, uh, as it describes it, need to, quote, stay the course, even though there will be pain. It was almost like, you know, they were saying this is the recession we have to have, Um you know, to tame inflation, uh, Australia's central bank is being counselled, therefore, to stay the course. Is this why they call economics the dismal science, that, that you know, your prices are going up and the way to address that is to make your housing costs go up dramatically as well? Yeah, inflation or, or is almost a self, uh, should be, um, the kind of inflation we've had, one where it comes from outside, it's not feeding on itself yet in Australia. It's uh, that, uh, you know, the price of diesel has gone up, right? That's why your price of lettuce has gone up, that and fertiliser and, and droughts. It's nothing to do with, uh, we've had high demand, but uh, it's it's not to do with demand. A lot of it's from outside. Um, when that happens, well, um, I'm not sure what the right response, the only, the, the Reserve Bank is like, the, you know, the person with a, um, a hammer who, Mm. You know, the, 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 they can see a nail, yeah. and uh, that—that's—that's that's really all they've got to do. I don't think that. Well, we have a very good record. A lot of people criticise the Reserve Bank. They say it kept interest rates too high uh, in the the five years before COVID, but um, I don't think that any Reserve Bank governor, especially one who's under scrutiny with an inquiry into the Reserve Bank wants to be the governor who brought on a recession. We've avoided uh, two of the uh, recessions that have taken place uh, you know, in the rest of the world. Um, the, the one uh, around uh, uh, the year uh, 2000 uh, with the tech wreck and mm. the uh, global financial crisis recession, which is called the Great Recession mm. in the rest of the world. Yeah. Through pretty nimble use of interest rates, they, they weren't in, in the GFC, they weren't afraid to 
cut by, you know, we're talking now, you know, will they increase by half a percent? They increased by one complete percentage point, then another, sorry, they cut by Decreased, one complete yeah, yeah, yeah. percentage point, then another one complete percentage point, then three quarters of a percent. They're not afraid to do big moves. And it's the one thing, I mean, yeah, you know, have you kept your inflation target? You'll be marked down if you don't. You'll really be marked down if you destroy the economy. And we seem to be better at managing things. So far, it is looking that people can absorb the pain of those interest rate increases. Some people can't, but um, there's a sort of small number of them. So I believe, and certainly uh, Jim Chalmers' forecasts uh, believe, that uh, even if there is a recession in the US, and there is, by the way, uh, what what we call here a technical recession. Yeah, what recession. we would call a recession. They have a different measure, don't they? Yeah, what, what they do, they, they have a, a group of wise men. They're mainly men. They sit around the National Bureau of Economic Research Business Cycle Dating Committee, and they decide <laughs> whether or not – no, it's not what you think. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, well, you the just dating, say they're all men. I mean. they're, they're, well, they're nearly all men. But the, uh, the dating committee uh, decides – they do it largely by email. as a, a podcast on Planet Money about it, and they um, – uh, decide whether they think such and such a situation is defined as a recession. Now, the only problem is they tend to do it after the event yeah. when, it, when it's not as useful. But um, yeah, the US economy has gone backwards uh, two quarters in a row. Um, we will move heaven and earth, the Reserve Bank and the government. Uh, it'll, um, if it's winding back spending, in the new budget in October, second budget in a year. Uh, if it does that, it'll reverse course very quickly to avoid a recession. No one wants it on their report card. Yeah, it's an interesting point though, isn't it? Because I saw a very eminent economist talking, I think it was on the PBS NewsHour a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that um, in the US they were looking at a recession. They're uh, bad at it. The US yeah. is really yeah. bad at and, doing this. And he I said if why. a recession is what they have to do to tame inflation, then that's what they'll do. That was the sort of line. And I thought, well, I don't know that we'd run the same sort of argument here. We have, we have, as you say, we've been really successful at steering around these things uh, using both instruments, both arms of policy, fiscal and monetary mm. policy, uh, to to get around them. And, of course, we've been protected to a large extent by China, which is now not in the position to give us that level of protection, which is an interesting dimension as well. Yeah, well, China ga both gave us low goods and high low-priced goods and high income. Yeah, for, yeah, for our uh, commodities. Uh, for, yeah, yeah, and... Um, Certainly, both of those um, uh, are at risk because China's basically decided that it, it doesn't want to expand uh, its economy like it did. So, yeah, so it's it's essentially not it's growing closed at the moment, down, right? uh, Some production. So. Yeah, but you know, I don't want to sound like an Australia oi oi oi, but we are good at this. Okay, so why might we not be good at it? What's the sort of uh, other argument? You know, on, on the other side, one is that. Um, the amount that we owe on housing has never been as high, uh, you know, as a, as a proportion of uh, of income, uh, and uh, a lot of people have sort of built their expectations. You know, interest rates at three point something percent. Well, when they're five or six percent, and they're paying up to another thousand dollars a month. Uh, it'll have pain uh, like it. Uh, those in same sort of increase in interest rates wouldn't have had. But uh, the Reserve Bank knows all this. 
So and it'll um, it does, but as you said, it's 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 had a, a fairly limited toolkit, basically a hammer. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, well, actually, uh, there's, there's uh, Brad DeLong, economic historian in the US, uh, refers to it as a rock. Right. He, he doesn't says even have a handle on it. Yeah. He, he he said that it's actually got two tools. One is to stand in front of the economy, in front of the population, tossing the rock from one hand to another, <laughs> indicating. Indicating that it might just use it—that is very effective. Might just well, yeah. Speaking and of, the other is yeah. if, if that doesn't work, you, you then use the rock to smash the economy in, in the, the face. face yeah. but, <laughs> what um, a lovely image! Uh, but but that's what the Reserve Bank is doing now, um, and it did it uh, before when it really wanted people to spend. It, it indicated, perhaps unwisely, that interest rates would remain low for a long time. Well, this it, they is, call this it is, open mouth operations. Well, I, I've heard to it talk. described to yeah, I've heard it described also as yield curve control or yield curve management. Oh, that was uh, a particular thing they did um, uh, affecting uh, the cost of money over three years. Yeah, and so that made people think that the cash rate would remain uh, so low you've for got three years rates, until it wasn't. So you've got interest rates at an emergency level, effectively zero. And you tell uh, everyone that, in fact, that's You're where they're going to stay until 2024. Because you can't make a negative, so you say, yeah. uh, well, uh, we're just going to stretch out the time. They, they, the, the problem with open mouth operations is um, people believe you and get disappointed. And right now, the Reserve Bank's indicating, we're really worried about inflation. We're going to push interest rates up and up. Mm. People will believe them. And then when people are disappointed uh, over time, it, it you know they become less effective because people think ah we don't believe you anymore but um, that's terribly important it's much better to toss the rock from hand to hand than it is to smash the economy with it well there was already a degree of that uh, not believing in the uh, the way markets were looking at the prediction of no interest rate rises until 2024, yeah. wasn't there? I mean, the, there was already a case of markets saying, well, actually, we can read the fundamentals too, and that's not going to be the case. Yeah, and, so they were starting and, and to indeed, move. They, they, they took on the bank. They, they said, well, right, you say that three-year bonds are priced as this, uh, you know, very low rate. I think it was 0.1%. Mm. Uh, we're going to uh, bet that they go up. And uh, the Reserve Bank took their money and, uh, or they took the Reserve's bank money and they kept taking it and taking it. And eventually, you know, like in poker, the Reserve Bank realized it was bluffing and becoming poorer and poorer and it walked yeah, away. Yeah. Um, and the Reserve Bank is going to meet tomorrow as we record this, which right? Which is so, Tuesday. Yeah. Which we, that Tuesday is in when the bank meets rather than when we're recording this because we're actually talking on Monday afternoon. Um, but it's uh, um, an important point to make because some people. PM. Eastern yeah. time. Yeah. So some people will be listening to this after that's happened, of course, and uh, just bear in mind, we don't have the exact knowledge of what the bank does, although the uh, the well, expectation is 50 basis points. <laughs> yeah, half, half a percent. Yeah. Half a percentage point. Yeah. Uh, up from 1.35 to 1.85. Yeah. Uh, markets are predicting in the upper twos, uh, maybe three. Uh, this is for its cash rate. And uh, so it's got uh, a long way to go if they're right. And uh, that'll uh, push up mortgage rates. And the idea is to get to a new, so-called neutral setting, which is neither sort of uh, sort of driving, uh, which is neither tightening or loosening, but sort of a neutral setting. But what is that? What, what, well, the Reserve Bank says a neutral setting is a cash rate of two point five percent. So yeah. you can see it's. And do you think uh, that's got, right? Uh, a long way. It's uh, pretty I low think, still. Yeah, because well, their argument is that that means money is free. Yeah. So if their inflation target is. Two point five percent. 
and they get the uh, the rate to the banks at 2.5%, that means it costs them nothing um, adjusted for inflation. Um, and they say that's neutral, uh, certainly historically, uh, neutral has been higher than that. But I don't think they take that calculation seriously. What they look at is the extent to which prices are coming down, and prices will come down, even though the, the inflation is caused by things from overseas and so on. If people tighten their belts, it'll mean that the things they, they, they just spend less at the supermarket, take fewer trips, use less petrol and and uh, so on. And so that demand brings, a drop that in demand. Prices brings, down yeah. and, and employment down. So uh, brings uh, unemployment up. Now, how does that affect what you said before, though, about the possibility of unemployment having a two in front of it, for example? The, well, the ANZ Bank is forecasting that, knowing what the Reserve right, so Bank taking is, that into account, they still think it will go that low. Yeah, and you know the the Treasury's uh, forecasting is certainly you know three point something, mm. three point seven five is it doesn't think it'll go higher than that. Uh, you know, as the four years its forecasts go out. Mm. So we, you see, this is as I see. And you're a political scientist. This is, as I see, the sort of uh, where politics and economics meet in this. Um, and here's what happened. We need to go back uh, not too many years to uh, the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, who was uh, promising back in the black. He'd already had the, the mugs printed that said back in the black. We can bring a the budget into surplus, and he was—you can see it in the uh, in the figures, in the government debt figures. Uh, he was really reining in spending, um, and uh, he was promising. Uh, uh, certainly, you know, unemployment was in the uh, the fives, getting near six percent, but he wasn't doing anything in terms of government spending to to bring unemployment down. Then COVID came; he was released from that commitment. Um, you know, and sensibly spent big time. But what that did politically was mean he didn't, when the need for the big spending to control COVID had finished, he was no longer, and, and there was no chance of, you know, getting back to the black. Mm. He was released from the need to even move in that direction. Yeah. So in the budget we had this year, uh, he had, you know, a few revenue surprises and he spent most of them. No, I think he spent about a third of them. So even though the economy was uh, getting up ahead of steam, people were spending, he thought, right, having been through this adventure, back in the black, no longer being uh, worth thinking about yeah, politically. It's no longer a tangible goal. Yeah, we may as well get something else out of this. Mm. We may as well salvage. Buy some votes. Really? Well, yes. And, which is the same thing, uh, because government spending lowers unemployment, really low unemployment. Mm. Um Combined with the closed borders, that's what happened. So that, that's sort of where the, the politics and economics mix. And having is the thing about unemployment is it's a learning thing. Um, people think um, there's a, a limit below which you, you can't get unemployment down. And that's right because there are a lot of people who are not easily employable. They might have mental health problems. They might have simply been unemployed for so long that employers think there's something wrong with them. You know, any employer will hire a, a bright new graduate or, or someone out of school uh, over someone who's been out of work for several years. Um, so what happened when we got unemployment down? We started it's a bit like Sydney's Warragamba Dam, right? During a drought, they start actually, the water they use isn't very good because it's all the gunky stuff 
at the bottom, right? Mm. But they're forced to use it, mm. and they uh, they do what they can with it. They it's clean not a, it. Not and a so great on. metaphor, but I no, take your well, point. Well, they they start. No, I, I, I suppose it's an insulting metaphor to some uh, unemployed people. But, but you didn't what, mean it like that. I understand no, that. but what the employers are then forced to do is to take people they wouldn't otherwise yeah. want to take, and that makes those people employable. And so that, if you like, lowers the floor under unemployment because they're no longer unattractive. Yes, they may have had physical or mental health problems. Yes, they may have once been out of work for a long time, but they're now seen as people who can work. And so the, the reason, a part of it, that people are continuing to forecast you know, unprecedentedly low unemployment for half a century. The reason is because we've actually made people employable. So that's why that's likely to continue uh, even after we reopen the borders. Those people aren't going to lose their jobs. Um, it's just that uh, where there are shortages, uh, people are going to come in. And, um, you know, even as the Reserve Bank pushes up rates, um, it's those people, employers tend to stay with who they've got. Mm. We have made a lot of people's lives, um, 100,000 people's lives uh, around that, permanently better in a way that wouldn't have happened were it not for COVID and the treasurer's change of mind about it. We could have made their lives permanently better at any time if the government had wanted to spend really big and keep spending really big. But uh, COVID changed the politics and we did it. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I, I take that point, but it, it wouldn't it also have been possible to make some changes to the way we allocate money to fairness to the distribution of wealth through COVID, as was seen as necessary at the moment of COVID, at the sort of, you know, in, in, the, in the peak of anxiety in 2020. If you're and asking, dislocation. could they have done it better? Yeah, of course. But well, that's, I, 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 what know. I'm saying is that we, we still have $46 a day for the dole and $46 a day is going backwards, in as we know, with the inflation rate that we're now dealing with. It just seems like an uncivilised thing to do. I'm going to blow your mind, Mike. Mm. Um, you know how the unemployment benefit uh, job seeker is terribly low, mm. as you're saying. No doubt about that. Mm. Unconscionably. What, the reason it stays unconscionably low is because it's indexed to, you might be able to see where I'm going, it's indexed to inflation, CPI, not to wage growth. It's indexed, has been indexed to something which has grown by very little mm. compared to something which has grown by a lot. The uh, uh, benefit, uh, job seeker, is about to be increased in September massively because it will go up with inflation mm. this time. Now, look at what's causing inflation. Uh, yeah, the, the, the headline figure is 6.1%. Uh, at the moment, yeah, the 12-month yeah, figure, but yeah. there's something funny about the way they calculate, a lot of things funny about the way they calculate inflation. About a third, 30% around that, of that figure is caused by the increase in one price. Inflation is uh, all of the goods, apples, oranges, uh, bread, butter, <laughs> right? All the, all the fruits. Yeah, yeah. Um, all of those plus one item which ha takes up more of the CPI than anything else, and that's the price of new dwellings, someone buying a new house. <laughs> now, that new dwelling uh, doesn't apply to people who are unemployed. Their own personal inflation rate hasn't gone up 6.1%. On my guess, it's probably gone up 4%, 4.5%. Uh, now, um, 
The figures don't say that. Mm. Their benefit's going to go up by more than their cost of living. Um, one of the many strange quirks. Well, and, we did and, see- And by the way, well, why is this? Why should new dwellings, because not many people buy new dwellings you know, in any given year, why should they- be the biggest single item, accounting for about 8% of the, of the basket of the consumer price index. Um, because, uh, yeah, they cost a lot more than a loaf of bread. Um, and normally it doesn't matter because normally dwellings don't have outsize increases. There's not shortages of materials and labour. But uh, there happens to have been, and it happens to have been really significant in pushing up the measured CPI, but not the experienced CPI. Most people indeed would think of a new dwelling, I would think of a new dwelling as a um, optional purchase. You can decide whether to buy one or not. But um, I decide not to most years. Yeah, yeah well, most of us don't on any yeah. given year, but the Bureau oddly defines it as uh, non-discretionary and essential. Don't ask me why. The biggest item is defined as an essential and because it's had such outsized moves, it's pushed up the whole CPI. Now, that's not well, to say- I suppose a new dwelling is a, gather, is, a, is a grab bag of a whole lot of individual of products. Now, look- Yeah, let's and just by the way, all products, uh, nearly everything, uh, most items are moving up. Mm. in unison. It's not just one thing, but yeah. that's a quirk. Yeah. Let's take a quick break because we're a bit overdue for one. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking about new dwellings and inflation and vagaries of the process or things that are contestable about it. I guess the government's now going to, Peter, is going to look at, you know, it's, as, as we were discussing, it's been certainly framing the, the, you know, the problems that it confronts and they are considerable, no doubt about it. Um, but the government's now going to be looking at uh, the story it's going to take forward uh, into this term. We know that Treasurer Jim Chalmers, uh, he used a statement last week to outline the, the sort of dire aspects of the situation. He's going to use a budget in October, October 25 indeed, uh, to um, uh, set out some plans for the government. Now, that's an out-of-cycle budget in a sense. We normally have them in May. Can you tell me what the logic of that is and what – is this a beefed up Maifo or a scaled back? Maifo being the mid-year review that's normally in December. Yeah, the mid-year yeah. economic and fiscal outlook, which we normally get just before Christmas, really, um, and which sometimes uh, people such as myself when reporting would be tempted to call a mini-budget and almost yeah. invariably find that it isn't. But um, this is marketed as a budget. It's because time's going quickly. 
<laughs> no, no, I mean, oh, so much has happened because the, the May budget was in March, yeah. right? It was yeah. brought uh, earlier right. because yeah. of the election. And the world really has changed. Like I said, it's not the coalition's fault. But, um, well, some things are. Uh, I mean, you well, can't do nothing for nine years and say it's not your fault. <laughs> well, like I said, I, I don't think they're responsible for the uh, uh, the, the the war in the Ukraine. Really big, yeah, the sure. really big increases in prices. Um so really, uh, we've had a year's worth of events. So, uh, so that's the logic uh, of yeah, it, you reckon? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't really think it's political uh, in the sense that you know, had the coalition been in office, I think they would have needed to have had. So, you think like the it. danger, in a sense, would have been? Well, danger might be a bit of a dramatic word, but there would have been a risk associated with waiting all the way till May of next year for a budget that it, yeah. because of the rapidly changing circumstances, yeah. it's basically required. Yeah, most years nothing changes. Um, in the last six months, nearly everything has changed. We were, you know, before this, we were had ultra low interest rates and we're looking at continuing very low inflation. So, mm. yeah, everything's changed. Yeah. Just on that inflation question, and this sort of doubles back, I suppose, to what we were talking about before, but um, in terms of the Reserve Bank and the hammer and the nail and all those sort of things, Warwick McKibben, of course, eminent uh, economist here at ANU and a former uh, Reserve Bank board member, he's of the view that uh, the 2 to 3% inflation target is not the best way mm. of um, of, of sort of influencing the economy um, and taming inflation, that uh, nominal spending would be a better way of going about it. Do you have a view about that? It seems to make sense. Um, inflation targeting happened by accident, and it's not actually that old. It right. began in New Zealand, uh, of all places, um, in the early 90s. Before that... Was that Rogernomics, was it? Uh, or was it even... Uh, I think... No, I think it was after that. Yeah. But um, uh, and uh, the, New Zealand did it first, uh, and every country followed it. But every country so introduced often the case, isn't it? I mean, no. <laughs> oh, come on, they're pretty progressive in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, um, maybe not to an economist, but well, actually, that they did it in a really weird way. Firstly, they 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 needed to pick a target. And so they picked a target that was where inflation was at the time. Right. We picked a different target, which is where inflation was at the time. The US picked a, another target, which is where inflation was at the time. And for a while, they had in the Reserve Bank Governor's contract a clause that to the uh, untrained eyes seemed to link his pay to um, meeting the rate of inflation, which was sort of uh, very... Um, a very uh, uh, literal and uh, wow. draconian sort of... Uh, uh, way of doing things. But um, the Reserve Bank didn't used to do that. We, we can't even remember this, uh, most of us, but it's not that long ago. The Reserve Bank didn't used to worry about interest rates. It didn't used to particularly worry about inflation. It used to uh, try to control the, the total amount of money in the economy mm. by adjusting, uh, basically adjusting how much uh, banks needed to hold away uh, from the economy and how much they were allowed to lend out. So this was was this what was called money supply? Yeah, yeah. M3, it, I think the, the, it was called. Yeah, well, <laughs> the, problem, the problem with money supply was uh, it was very hard to – a very slippery concept. So to start with, I think M1, mm. you think of motorways here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. M1 was uh, cash plus deposits with banks. And then they, M2, I think, included checks. And then they realized we needed to add building societies and then finance. It turns out the money can be sort of created and is. Uh, people basically, uh, if they're forced to, will use anything for money, you know, if they don't have enough uh 
coins or deposits in banks. They'll use IOUs. And mm. so they realized that was slippery. Then for a while, they developed their checklist. Now, the checklist was a punchline to a joke. It was hilarious. Um, because they needed to target something in that was still adjusting the rules on how much banks could lend out, they said, well, a money supply is not a very tangible thing. So that checklist had about seven or eight items in it. And as you know, uh, it was the uh, one of those LP records in the seventies. The you know a point in every direction is the same as no point in at all. Right. Yeah. So so I'm going everywhere all at once. Yeah. yeah. So um, that didn't make any sense, and eventually, but not for that many years. For uh, about thirty years, um, they've figured we're not going to bother about the money supply. We're just going to target one thing, and we're going to use one instrument to do it. Now, they could have picked another instrument. How much people are spending in the economy is sort of better. Um, but it's hard to measure. Uh, no, it's very easy to measure. Um, well, what's the argument the, against it? Um, there's an argument. Well, firstly, no people are talking about doing it, but it's not being done anywhere. Or maybe it is somewhere, but it's not being done in any other uh, major countries. Um, the other is that Australia's a bit odd in that um, – uh, our wealth, uh, our income depends on you know sales of commodities. It's only us in Canada among developed countries, and so it tends to fluctuate a lot. And maybe you'd need to. And Warwick McKibben uh, himself has said, "Well, you'd need to adjust for that." But um, really, what you're trying to get at is you're trying to keep things on an even keel. You don't want people to spend too much and inflation's a good proxy for that and maybe you could target that directly. You don't want them to spend too little because uh, that's unemployment. Um, that will be one of the things which will be looked at in the review. Yes, well, I was going to ask you that. Is, is this a, a possible outcome of the review? Because you can't look at the Reserve Bank without looking at its in instrument for uh, affecting the yeah. economy. It's it's 2 to 3% inflation target. Um it, the, the, the review will look at that, but I guess it will then question, is that the best measure? And out of that could come a, quite a dramatic change. And Chalmers wants this on his desk by March of next yes. year before he fills a couple of vacancies on the board and before indeed he looks at Philip Lowe's possible renewal or otherwise or, or replacement as, 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 as governor. Yeah. Probably, so, probably won't so there's stay. potentially some significant policy changes. And what's really here. good uh, about what Chalmers has done Really, really good. He has appointed three people to head that review who have no stated positions, no axe to grind. One of them, you know, former deputy governor of uh, Canada's mm. uh, bank. Which is good to have that external yeah. sort of objective yeah. look at our system. Yeah. And he's given them terms of reference that are, you know, the yes minister thing, never start an inquiry if you don't know where it will mm. end, mm. that are the opposite of that. They are really open, uh, examine everything you want about this, this, and this, and this. And then at the end of the terms of reference, it says, we want specific actionable recommendations by March. This is a real inquiry. Mm. This is what you do when you don't know where it will lead. And well, there's really no downside for the government in that because um, if it recommends quite a radical option that the government is not convinced it should do, then I guess it's not really taking a huge risk if it chooses not to go down that path. But it seems to me that yeah, the reform- That's what you want. Yeah, and the reform 
um, ethos of someone like Chalmers. He's a he's he's quite a sort of a, an expansive thinker, mm. um, and and this new government is trying to uh, you know indicate that also in lots of other policy areas. So it's quite consistent with that mentality to say, look, you tell us what what would be the best way for the Reserve Bank to undertake its responsibilities and what what are the best measures for doing it what's the best makeup of the bank uh, in terms of the board mm-hmm. you know these are these are good good uh, questions yeah. to ask and, and, and uh, it, it's hardly you, you don't think about it until the question is asked but mm. it is quite apparent that the way the reserve bank does things is completely wrong it took me a while uh, to realize that because I'm sort of in the monthly cycle of reporting on the Reserve Bank through all of that, those 30 years uh, that, that we've mentioned. And the way the Reserve, if you look at it from outside, as the Canadian will do, it's really bizarre. Do you, you, do you think that the yeah. sort of representative yeah, model yeah, that has crept in is a problem? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you've got, well, it used to be representative. You used yeah. to have a trade still unionist. still got a bit of that. You know. Yeah. So you've got a board of non-experts um, uh, one person on the board is uh, usually an academic. At the moment, there's two people who know anything about uh, what the Reserve Bank does, monetary policy. The rest are business figures. There's usually mm. a miner. There's usually a retailer. Um, this is re- this is a recipe for being snowed. Yeah, we we had at the Economist Conference in Hobart, the uh, um, Conference of Australian Economists, uh, sort of discussion about this, and one of the participants, uh, Danielle Wood the Grattan Institute, she used to work for the Competition and Consumer Commission. And she said, well, what we did when we presented stuff to the board, which is the commission, same thing, mm. when we presented stuff to the board, we didn't just tell them what we thought they should do and ask them to sign off on it, which is what happens. And uh, you know, a member of the board might ask questions and clarify things. And the board can always say no, but mm. that's what happens. She said, we had a black hat and a white hat. We had a staff member who would go and present the case for doing something you know, taking legal action against uh, a retailer or something. And then we had someone who would, uh, you know, like in debating, deliberately marshal the arguments for the other side as strongly as they could and present them, put them to the board. We are so far from that and we are so far from having board members with the expertise to, uh, you know, to weigh things up. This is only apparent when you look at it and that's what the committee is going to do. And for a long time I've been saying, oh, Nothing wrong with the Reserve Bank. It's on the whole done its job very well. But um, if you put yourself in the position of someone from Canada, uh, and most other central banks actually have people who understand things on the board and staffed, you know, like high court judges with an, with an associate, um, what we do is a potential recipe for getting things wrong because uh, we don't really have a board that acts like a board, I suppose. Yeah, and it's not, you can see that that would be hard to get a sufficiently rigorous outcome if you haven't had a sufficiently rigorous process. And someone who's not a monetary economist, for example, is is going to feel disinclined to question some of the, you know, fundamental assumptions that are built into a particular recommendation, whereas someone who is highly uh, conversant with all of those arguments mm. may well do so so yes it's a really it's a really interesting question it it it, it leads me to this question which is of your uh, of, of a question of your profession and that is do economists uh, take sufficiently into account the impacts of decisions on the most vulnerable because part of the logic of the representative model of you know having 
when in the days when they had a trade unionist on there and they have, like you say, someone from retail mm. and someone from mining and so forth, is to make sure that the arguments of those sectors, of those sort of essentially mm. interest interests in society are not overlooked. Uh, it may lead to suboptimal outcomes, okay, mm. let's agree on that. But the worry, I suppose, in the sort of pure economist's model is that they'll just see this whole thing as sort of numbers on a page rather than worry about what actually happens to a which, – which governments need to worry about and, you know, people of conscience need to worry about really. What happens to a strata of a society that is just basically, you know, risold by, by a decision? <laughs> that's right. And that's why you should not, you know – if I was uh, deciding on uh, what they, uh, the, the, the review should uh, recommend, well, I don't think it should go completely down that model. That is to say, I think you need many experts on the board <laughs> yeah. instead of two. Um, and I think you need some people who uh, have perspective. Your um, characterization of economists as a group is correct. They see things... Um, uh, in aggregate, and they don't look at details, and they just say, uh, "Oh well, if, if some people are uh, hurt by this, well, there are ways the government can compensate them, except it mightn't." So that's yeah, right. And, that's, no, the, and that's the suspicion yeah. that people have at the moment when they hear policymakers talking about, particularly from the Reserve Bank, talking about the buffer. You know, yeah, they, yeah. They, they they think, "Oh, you're telling me I have a buffer, but I don't feel like I have a buffer to uh, contend with a one and a half or two percent higher." Some people don't. Rate. Most do, and um, you know, they they sort of. And what the, is what is a buffer though? Is that does oh, that mean oh, that oh, you've yeah. been paying ahead of your rates? People people have been paying less. Existing people who had mortgages. Mm. Uh, before COVID, have been paying much less on their mortgages uh, than they but used they've to kept before up their COVID. Payments in many well, cases, some have, yeah, and um, that's a buffer. Right? Uh, well, yeah, but th they can also, you know, run that down if they want. But uh, but that's my point. What I'm saying is that's a buffer, and so is it a buffer for those people who have been banking some of that saving. Yeah, uh, and they've got. But but in in They're a sense, all, right. all you're really saying when you say they have a buffer is before they go broke, they can. There's, 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 all they're not going to go savings. broke, right? But um, no, no. But, but there are other people. Do. Well, they, 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 yeah, they, they've got a long time before. It's a uh, euphemism for go, how they're getting gutted, though, isn't it? Really? Um, well, they, they've got a, a you know a, a lot of fat that can be uh, that Trimmed. can be lived on, <laughs> yeah, but uh, smashed. But uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> yes, uh, the, all sorts of mixed metaphor. Yes. But the um, but there there are people, well, firstly, really poorly off people are, are not hurt by the mortgage increase. Let's not uh, pretend that. Well, but, their rents could go. Uh, yes. And what we're seeing in the Consumer Price Index is that for a long time, rents hadn't been moving. Uh, you know, the stories in the papers were that rents were moving, but they were based on asking rents. And most people don't pay asking rents. They're already on rents. But uh, it's reached the point now where, except for Sydney and Melbourne, where rents are still falling. Uh, in aggregate, um, rents in the other cities are now moving up uh, quite strongly. Um, so uh, that's true. Those people will be hurt. Ben Phillips from the Australian National University is uh, publishing a piece in The Conversation this week on Thursday coming up, analysing renters, uh, new start recipients, uh, job seeker recipients, pensioners, uh, mortgage holders, um, the effects of uh, interest rate uh, and inflation on all of them. I don't know what he'll find and he doesn't know what he'll find. But um, Keep an eye out for the, that. The, that yeah, sounds yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, 
that'll be interesting. But it, it's the fairly small number of people who've just got into the housing market. There aren't that many of them. And these are people who, one, don't haven't built up that buffer because they haven't been <laughs> paying above. We've got the opposite of a yeah, buffer, mate. Yeah, yeah precisely. They're, 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 like every mortgagee who's just starting, yeah. they are stretched. Yeah, they're stretched, right? And they were living on the assumption somewhat... Uh, uh, well, the Reserve Bank did give the impression yeah, rates to stay right. low. Some of them have got three-year fixed mortgages, some of them for two point something percent. Now, that three years is going to end mm. and that's going to be a pretty nasty adjustment. Now, what uh, APRA, Prudential Regulation Authority, uh, APRA, um, did to the banks in the last year, in the last few months, uh, six months, it um, said, we want you to expand the uh, sort of buffer you build in. So mm. when so a bank you can't lends, lend to someone yeah. who can't afford to accommodate, for example, uh, yeah, a two percent increase. That's yeah. right. So um, so that should take account of it. But the reality is, as mortgagees know, that mortgagees uh, are economical with the truth. Mm. Um, and do, optimistic about optimistic their futures, about yeah. you know their pay will go up or yeah. something, mm. and um, stretch themselves to the limit at the beginning, hoping things will get better, and may present uh, you know things to banks that make it look as if they could afford a higher um, interest rate, which will in fact um, uh, come as a shock. I don't know if there are many of those people, and. Uh, it's rather hard to think of even if the Reserve Bank, you know, had uh, caring and compassionate people on the board, how it could consider those people. It has only one tool, one interest rate. It is just for all of Australia. But uh, there are some people who will be hurt, not most people. Yeah, good. Now, look, in the time we've got left, I want to ask you quickly about well-being budgets because that's actually uh, also something that Jim Chalmers has talked Beginning about. Beginning this year, yeah, in October, yeah. How serious do we take seriously? Do we take these? Are they good things? Uh, very seriously. Um, uh, the the treasurer, former treasurer, um, you know, talked about people wearing caftans and yeah. You know, what did he this, this in is, one hand? What was his quote? Uh, Some, he said something about he, he imagines uh, the, the, this was uh, Frydenberg talking about Chalmers. He imagines the future treasurer delivering the budget fresh from the ashram, you know, <laughs> with with beads in one hand and the and his well being budget in the other. It was all very sort of dismissive. Now this would be really good because. Budgets, there's a lot of, you know, budgets essentially form a State of the Union address. They're essentially- uh, Yeah, what is a budget? I mean, a budget is really a statement of the accounts? Well, yes, but they have the function of being somewhere where governments announce new measures and talk about how they see the future. But all our statement of accounts, and there's a, a bill that has to go through Parliament yeah, that so authorises expenditure, but yeah. that's that's actually fairly, fairly small. Um, what they aren't is uh, and haven't been- uh, you know, except for countries which have introduced such budgets, New Zealand is um, uh, what they haven't included is how those measures will affect well-being. Now, well-being you could think of seven measures of well-being. Uh, one would be income distribution. Another would be GDP income itself. Another would be health of the population, measured perhaps by longevity and a few mm. other things. Mm. What they haven't done is included is cost-benefit analysis. So the government says, we're going to do this because it would be a good idea. But, but there's never no, really tested. Yeah, yeah, there is no, and then it will now be required to be, for new measures, an assessment of what it will do. Mm. Now, this is good. It's not 
it's the opposite of very fairy. Um, sure, some of those measures might be um, uh, health or, or inequality, or hard to measure. Um, but some of them are, you know, the very kinds of things that we do measure: mm. GDP, national income, and budgets haven't needed to do that. So um, it's really good. It's a step in the right direction. Um, uh, I don't think Chalmers will uh, walk in with a robe and things, <laughs> and I think it will improve over time. So he's had obviously very little time until October, and I think the Treasury's got a few other things on its plate as well. Yeah. Um, so you'll see at least uh, a skeletal outline of what are the things we're looking at, a skeletal outline of how the measures in this budget will improve, and an accounting every year. That has to be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, two things about it. One is it looks beyond GDP, and that's the things that, you know, I suppose Chama, you know, the Chama's predecessor was criticising. The other is that it actually includes GDP for the first time. So we'll, um, the government will have, in the same way as when the government spends money on roads or something, it has to, uh, you know, sometimes um, um, uh, imperfectly and implausibly justify how this, or the Olympic Games, yeah. you know, how this will improve. Well, the Grand Prix, the- <laughs> remember when we're in, in our old city of Adelaide, they used to go on about the Grand Prix's effect on the economy and you yeah, always knew and- it was a... And you know, with the the, the 2000 Olympics, we Mm. saw the effect on the Mm. New South Wales economy. That was fairly clear, and it wasn't the one that was forecast. But um, at least they'll have to um, produce those kind of studies uh, for the measures. It's a good thing. All right. Now, I said that was the final question. I've got one final one. Um, It's about. It's just about. I suppose about the policy decisions that are made, and we think about uh, you know inflation at the moment, right? They're talking about 7.75 topping out. Alan Kohler, among some other economic commentators, made the point that, in fact, the June quarter number of 1.8 was less than the previous quarter, and he said that inflation might have already peaked. Now, yeah, you know, we can't we, tell. No, we can't tell, but it's it is interesting that we're always that. looking backwards. I mean, that in a sense, we're, 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 here we are sitting, at, at, you know, mm. now we're in August, right? Mm. Um, and we're talking about the June quarter. Uh, so it's always, in a sense, a limitation of policymakers that they're getting historical figures. Is, is it possible that there's a degree of, you know, expectation management and yield curve control and some of these other things you that are creeping talk, into making things look worse. Well, than in other words, we're talking about be. an inflation rate of this high and and possibly interest rate trajectory of this much, which has its cooling effect on the economy anyway. Yeah, this is the um, open mouth operation. Yeah, yeah, uh, yes. I think there's reason to believe that these inflationary pressures from overseas, well, they are, they are they're easing. The, the oil price has gone down. And all, all that you need for it not to um, feed into high inflation is for it not to go up further. Mm. Even if it stayed unchanged, that would be zero inflation. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's that. Uh, measures of... Uh, it's hard to tell. There's a monthly measure put out, it was put out on Monday today by the Melbourne Institute. Uh, that actually showed in uh, last month in July, which is post the inflation figures, that uh, uh, the sort of monthly number jumped uh, rather than uh, eased off. It's too early to tell. Um, I-, I thought that um, Alan Kohler was. Uh, uh, optimistic and I wouldn't stick 
my neck out. What we do know, and this is very good news, Mark, is that um, very good news for nerds and, you know, seriously for the, the people managing things. Um, we're about to have a monthly CPI. Now, the Consumer Price Index, they used to have people going in with a handheld device, going into supermarkets and uh, writing down the prices. Big, uh, you know, every other shop. A very expensive, uh, laborious exercise. And um, that's why it was only done once every three months. Most countries uh, do it uh, monthly. Uh, us in New Zealand are the only two that only do it three monthly. Uh, this month, uh, the Bureau of Statistics will release details of its plans from monthly CPI, which means that we'll know much more. And that's because they get the data that they hardly visit. Indeed, during COVID, their operations weren't stopped. They hardly visit a store. They scrape rents and other prices uh, from the web. Uh, they get, in the case of rents, they get real estate agents to, to tell them. The uh, supermarket and other chains, Bunnings and that, just hand over all of their uh, all of their scanner and cash register data, and this means that it's possible to do it monthly. They think they'll be able to cover about eighty percent of the, the the goods that they uh, cover quarterly, the, the goods and services. Uh, so you know, I suppose some people still pay cash to mm. the uh, hairdresser or something, but um, there's not much of that. So um, we should be able to uh, have a much closer idea of what's happening. I, I'd like to say that inflation um, uh, is sort of beginning, you know, the pressure's beginning to ease. Uh, I don't know that it is. I know that I am chastened by the things that I've written earlier this year saying, oh, it's just about to ease now. Yeah, it's right. just about to ease yeah. now. So I've been wrong before. <laughs> yeah, and look, oh, haven't it, we all? Haven't we all? Yeah, and but if it if the thing about it, it's it's a bit like the the unemployment thing, um, you know, in that uh, if you have a lot of unemployment, it's then very hard to get down, mm. as I was saying. Mm. Um, if you have a lot of inflation, it gets built into yeah, it gets uh, baked in, uh, yeah, expectations. Um, then so the sort of floor uh, under inflation becomes not two percent, but five or seven yeah. percent. Now, does that matter? Probably doesn't matter so long as it's steady and everyone expects that. Mm. But that's not what we've got. What we've got is uh, uh, great unpredictability, yeah. which makes it very hard to do something. So a business might decide, oh, we don't know what's going to happen. And that's yeah. not good. That's good. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's been absolutely terrific talking to you. I could do so for many hours and, in fact, have seems, done so. Seems I like, oh, well, actually, it's <laughs> one second less. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, this is the special Speeding Earth edition of Democracy Sausage. Um, for those of you who are listening to this before uh, Wednesday of this very week, um, you might want to keep your ear out, eye out for a special address by um, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He is actually speaking directly to ANU, which is um, a pretty amazing moment, really, and he's going to be speaking to ANU students. Uh, you can watch that on the World Wide Web, as I understand it, or if you don't see it live, you can watch it on ANU TV YouTube. And uh, I'd recommend that you do that because it's going to be quite a special special event. He's going to He's made a priority of actually talking directly to students and taking questions from students, and he even wants to see those students as he's talking to them. He thinks that's very important. So that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Once again, Peter, thanks so much for, for coming in. Love talking to you. Well, the world is speeding up, so we might do it again. <laughs> Indeed, we might. Democracy Sausage for this week. Until next week, bye for now. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.